And now, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your health, provoke thought, expand consciousness, and promote community. Today, we have an exciting and educational interview with Dr. Bryant Welch. We're going to talk to him about his book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. I'm going to read a quote from the book right now. America is rapidly becoming a nation psychologically unable to confront its problems. From the White House, from the media, and from the pulpit, Americans have been deceived by predatory political forces into fighting a disastrous war, squandering our national wealth, destroying our standing with other nations, and neglecting badly needed initiatives at home. It is a series of failures that will haunt America for generations to come, and the consequences will not end simply because George Bush is no longer in office. Stay tuned for that exciting interview, but first, a few news and notes items in psychology and medicine. Regularly using a mobile phone may increase the risk of tinnitus, which involves constant ringing or buzzing in the ear, a study suggests. Austrian researchers recruited 100 people with the condition and 100 without and compared mobile phone use. The bottom line of this study is that it is still controversial. There, are no, there isn't definitive evidence, but a word to the wise. If you have tinnitus, better to use some kind of a headset or an earbud. Take the conservative approach and don't hold the, the, uh, the cell phone up to your ear. Uh, this is an interesting study, and uh, it's, it was uh, at the Medical University, University of Vienna, if you want to follow up on it. So... Stay, stay with, uh, with the earbuds and uh, stay away from your, keeping your, your phone right to your ear. Um, for those of you who use uh, glucosamine and chondroitin, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about that. Major stores have been selling it nationally, uh, in, in large amounts of it. It looks like it comes in by the ton at times. And now yet another large government-sponsored stu study of glucosamine and chondroitin for arthritis of the knee determined once again, and I say once again, that these supplements were no better than a placebo for mild to moderate arthritis. If you want to look this up, it's in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases online June 4th. Um, another study, a Norwegian study, found that uh, glucosamine was ineffective for back pain due to spinal arthritis Folks, you want to look into this further before spending your money on uh, glucosamine and chondroitin because, unfortunately, uh, they may fall into what we call snake oil cures. And here's a cute one. Your lifespan may be as wide as your smile. A study looks at smiles and pictures of baseball players and compares the death rates. This is a very interesting thing. We, researchers at Wayne State University uh, used information from the baseball register to look at photos of 230 players who began their careers in professional baseball before 1950. 
The players' photos were enlarged and a rating of their smile intensity was made. Big smile, no smile, partial smile. The players' smile ratings were compared with data from deaths that occurred in 2006 to 2009. And here's what they found out. For those players who had died, the researchers found longevity ranged from an average of 72.9 years for players with no smiles to 75 years for players with partial smiles to 79.9 years for players with big smiles. Interesting. So what does this mean? It means, does it mean if you get yourself to smile more, you'll live longer? Or does it mean those who somehow are smiling more are living longer? And if it's the second, then how does one become that second group and just start smiling earlier? Some years ago, a psychologist uh, discovered that there was a benefit to smiling. I think he was looking at, uh, at, um, uh, at uh, happiness ratings and, and, and started to put together some program where he was going to have laughing rooms around the country. Well, this is relatively connected. No matter how you look at it, folks, there's a lot to be said for smiling because we do feel good. And if you do feel good, that means something internally is happening. That's how the feelings come about. So now we're going to take a very short break. We're going to come right back with Dr. Bryant Welch. We're going to talk about State of Confusion, his book, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. It is my distinct privilege to have with us today Dr. Bryant Welch, who is both a clinical psychologist and an attorney. Welcome, Dr. Welch. Thank you, Dr. Miller. appreciate it. Nice of you to have me. Dr. Bryant Welch is a Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. He's a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of North Carolina. He has a long and prominent career. He was with the American Psychological Association, which is, I believe, and he will comment on this, the the strongest and and largest mental health organization on the planet. He was with the American Psychological Association from 1986 to 1998. He served as executive director for professional practice. He was a senior policy advisor for health care reform. And his honors are numerous, including distinguished contribution awards from five states in our union. He also received an honorary doctorate of human letters from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Part of why it's such a privilege for me to have Bryant Welch on the program today is, as some of you know, I'm also a clinical psychologist. And to have this distinguished man on our program is just uh, nothing short of wonderful. Um, I'm going to read another quote uh, from your book, Bryant, and then we'll take it from there. State of Confusion explains from a psychological perspective how and why manipulative and destructive techniques are now deeply embedded in our political system and why they've had a progressively debilitating effect on the American mind. 
If they go unchecked, America will be less and less able to respond rationally to the very real crises facing us. Now, prior to getting into the book, I want to ask you, why did you write this book? Well, uh, Richard, I, that's a good question. I, I wrote it because uh, in, it was my sense that a lot of people were very confused about why there were so many seemingly irrational decisions being made by our country, but also by people who were supporting the leaders who were making the decisions. And I felt like it really should be looked at as a public mental health crisis and that we had to begin helping people see what it is that was going on psychologically in the mind that was causing us to behave so irrationally. And I did feel, I spent, as you indicated, a number of years in Washington uh, working lobbying and working with elected officials, uh, as well as a lot of time in the clinical consulting room doing psychotherapy with patients. And I found that the same principles that govern our ability to understand patients also were helpful and could give one a unique view on why policy decisions were being made the way they were and why the electorate was behaving so irrationally. So I wrote the book in the hope that if we could illuminate why those things were taking place, we would be in a much better vantage point to, uh, to prevent them in the future. Are, are you saying that you took the perspective of the United States, our country, being a patient walking into your office and you're, looking at, <laughs> and you're looking at the system at the whole and saying, what is this patient, what is this country saying, and how does it get to be saying that? Well, I think you've uh, articulated it probably better than I did, Richard, in, at any point in the book, but I think that's probably a fair statement. Uh, why, what's wrong in America uh, is uh, from a psychological perspective. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, a, a very nice and succinct way of explaining what I was doing. Now, one of the things that you say in the very early part of your book is that America has been gaslighted. Tell our listeners what that means. What does it mean that America sure. has been gaslighted? Gaslighting is a mental health term that derived from the old movie Gaslight. And it, it basically, uh, in the movie, as some of your uh, listeners who are as old as I am will recall, uh, was a movie with Ingrid Bergman and... Uh, uh, Charles Boyer, in which a husband was trying to drive his wife crazy. And the way in which he tried to do that was to manipulate her environment in such a way that she thought that she was losing her mind. And the title of the movie comes from one of the techniques he used, which was to raise and lower the gas lights in the house. And when she inquired about it, he insisted that they had not been changed. So he was... Um, playing mind games by uh, monkeying with her trust of her own perceptions and her own sense of reality. When that happens, people feel debilitated, they become very anxious, they become very dependent on other people who are telling them what's real and what's not real, uh, and it sets in a profound psychological regression. The correction, as occurred in the movie, is when a Scotland Yard detective, Joseph Cotton, uh, comes in and catches the husband uh, with what he's doing and explains it to the wife and confronts the husband, and the wife's mental health is restored, 
and the husband is led off to prison. Now, this is a dramatization of it, but the term really means people are having their sense of what is real and what is not real manipulated, and it sets in motion a very profound and very destructive uh, impact on the way in which they're able to function uh, psychologically. They're less independent. They're less rational. And ultimately, if it gets carried to uh, an extreme, they can literally go psychotic. They're not able to make sense of the world around them, and that is what we call mental illness. I'm listening to everything you're saying and applying it to our country. This patient called America that walked into your office, and I'm asking myself, how, does, how has America been gaslighted? Well, it's been gaslighted in, in many ways. Um, and the book uh, takes some of the major ways in which I think it's been gaslighted. Uh, in, I divide that in the book in terms of who's doing the gaslighting and what are the psychological mechanisms by which they do it. Now, who's doing the gaslighting? Well, political figures, uh, uh, un unfortunately, it's not confined to one party, but... Uh, I, have, I think we have to say that the, the far right has been much more successful in doing it than the left has, uh, and, and for different reasons they, they approach things differently. In other words, not that the left hasn't wanted to do it, but the far right has just been better at doing well, it, huh? Well, I, I think the far left has, has had a chronic problem with aggression, and they keep hoping that if they are good boys and girls, and engage in rational discussion that they will carry the day. Uh, but what the last few years have taught, and really the history of politics will teach us, is that uh, people are going to respond on the basis of very, very primitive emotional states. And you have to touch people in those deep emotional states if you're going to influence them. Now, in the book, I talk about three psychological states that reach us at the most primitive depths of our being. And I say that if we can manipulate people in those areas, we can ultimately own them. Now, those three areas uh, are paranoia. If we can make people feel threatened, that they're going to be invaded, that their personal space, their safety is going to be invaded, um, that's one way in which we can undercut their trust in their perceptions and their ability to function independently. Sexuality is the second area I discussed, that if we make people feel very uncertain or very uncomfortable, either in their sexual identity, as evidenced by the response to the uh, gay marriage issue, uh, if we make them feel uh, attach a, a sexual disgust to a political candidate, as was done with uh, Clinton, uh, and a whole host of other ways, we can begin to upset them and get them to pay attention to that issue rather than to the more important rational issues like whether we should go to war, whether we should pay more money for their children's schools, and what have you. And finally, I look at the emotional, psychological state of envy, which I think does not receive enough attention even in the mental health field in terms of a factor that motivates, motivates people. Uh, envy, if you'll look at any negative advertisement, 
and you look at the kind of things that are, are done by many politicians but were especially effectively harnessed for the first time by the by the right uh, by the by the conservative right what you find is these so-called negative advertisements will typically generate they will target somebody who is the object of someone else's envy and they will tell the viewing audience that it's okay to hate those people in other words to give vent to their envy and they wrap it in a moral justification for them so uh, sexual morality can be used to uh, justify uh, venting what is really envy of another person this is why the john mccain ads with paris hilton uh, summer before last were potentially very dangerous now those of us who were looking at it from a quote rational perspective thought they were just crazy but what they were doing was portraying obama as someone who is receiving this adulation that we would all like to have. We would all like to be greeted by cheering throngs of people as we walked through uh, the streets of Europe. Uh, but the envy that created, if you then put it in the context where he's hanging out with a uh, someone who is viewed as uh, disreputable or immoral or uh, raises specters of illicit sex, uh, then you start justifying a moral resentment which can attach to the envy and then be used uh, to generate hatred against the object, which was Obama. Now, McCain uh, fortunately dropped that, but it scared me when it came out because I thought that while everyone else was saying it was nonsensical, it uh, could have done a lot of damage to Obama. So those are the three areas that that get manipulated and paranoia sexuality and envy you're correct. saying you're saying are three very basic psychological uh, uh methodologies would you call them uh, I, I would yes manipulating people in those areas if you look at the election results in ohio uh you can you can find that there were areas where concern about uh gay marriage were highest and you'll remember in 2004 ohio had a constitutional amendment on the issue placed on the ballot uh those were there were traditional democratic voters who voted republican in that election there were enough of them that could have swayed the election so that the state would have gone uh for john Kerry, but because they switched their, their, because of their votes on the gay marriage issue carried over into the presidential campaign, Kerry lost the state of Ohio. Maybe we, so, we want to give the, uh, our listeners a little background on this because uh, you know, I've been at this profession long enough to remember when uh, homosexuality was still a mental disease. We, right. So give us a little background on that and what happened in 1973 and then went, went on to happen uh, uh, later on uh, in the late 80s. In, in, in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality uh, from its list of uh, nervous and mental disorders. Instead, they replaced it with a, what they called it as a political compromise. They said that quote, ego dystonic homosexuality is a disease. 
Now, what's egodystonic homosexuality? That's homosexuality that is bothersome to the homosexual, him or herself. Um, and in 1988 or 89, we, uh, with a lot of lobbying from psychologists, we, we got that removed as well. Excuse so me, Bri Brian, excuse me, let me interrupt you just for a second. If you'd be so kind just to uh, move a, a little bit away from your microphone. We're, oh, we're getting sorry, some feedback. sure. Certainly. How is that? That's great. Okay. Um, so as you were saying, the uh, egodystonic homosexuality was left in after homosexuality was removed as a psychiatric disease. Right. Because uh, many of our public may not realize that it was just that recently that homosexuality was considered a mental disease. Okay, so it gets moved from being a disease to, to being egodystonic, which means, as you said, that homosexuality was an illness if the gay male was bothered by his homosexuality. Right. right. And we then argued, well, wait a minute, we don't have egodystonic heterosexuality, <laughs> so why should we have egodystonic homosexuality? So with testimony uh, from those of us at the American Psychological Association, that was removed. Uh, now, removing it from a list of nervous and mental disorders does not remove it as a source of great apprehension in the minds of uh, a, a, uh, an American public that has been brought up to fear homosexuality. And I think the reason people are so worked up about this, and I think we saw it in 2004 when we saw the news pictures of gay men and lesbians kissing on the courthouse steps, both in Massachusetts and in San Francisco. Now, when someone uh, who has not been exposed to that sees members of the same sex kissing for the first time, because what we watch, we identify with, for these people, it was almost as if they were having a personal experience of kissing a member of the same sex. Now, we all tend to be repulsed by any type of sexual activity that is not what turns us on. If you think of a small child when uh, he's first told about uh, sex, his response is invariably, yuck. And that's because he did not have a developed sex drive. If our sex drive is developed to be heterosexual, homosexual, or whatever, we tend to be turned off when we encounter other forms of sexual expression. So those pictures occurring when they did shortly before the election made people very frightened and very apprehensive about the gay marriage issue. And... If you get people focusing on one of these issues, sexuality, paranoia, or envy, they are such a deep part of the psyche that it will preempt their issue in anything else in the policy arena. As I said before, it can be schools for their kids. It can be, um, uh, it can be health insurance. It can be all kinds of things, but they're, they're wiped away. They're washed away by their concern about their sexual fears, their paranoia, or the expression of their envy. So this is the kind of thing, for example, that George Bush did in 1994 when he was uh, uh, campaigning against Ann Richards for governor of Texas. Where they, he did that uh, 
<laughs> that whispering campaign, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I do, I do. Uh, I, there's a famous quote from uh, Ann Richards who, who says, and you have it in your book actually, she said, I knew I'd be accused of sleeping with every man in the state, but I didn't realize it would be every woman too. Yeah, that's right. But, that's he, a... but he did a lot of damage with that whispering campaign, didn't he? She lost the election. Yeah, he, he did. And uh, as you know, that is a uh, – Carl Rove was a specialist in sexual innuendo and rumors and, uh, in fact, uh, restructured the Alabama Supreme Court by accusing one of the pivotal judge elections, uh, uh, painting the – Democrat who worked with children in youth groups as being a pedophile. So in terms of raising our consciousness as a people with regard to how we're being manipulated by those who would use psychological methodologies to manipulate us, are you saying that when we see in the press a big event about the sexuality of some congressman, some campaigner, some politician, whoever it happens to be, we immediately should be aware or at least thinking of the possibility that this is a technique that's being used that has very little, if anything, to do with the person's sexuality and what it has to do is with diverting us from what the real issue at hand is? Yes, that's, that's a very nice articulation of what I'm trying to say. That sounds that sounds ex extremely important. I mean, I'm not allowed to use on the air what the street, uh, how the street describes what you're talking about. But I'll see. I I think mind twisting might be uh, as close as I'm allowed <laughs> yeah. to that. I can say right. Right. In other yes. words, you 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 do something to twist the person's mind so that they end up being focused on something other than what is in their own self-interest to be focused on. That, that's exactly right. Poisoning the well is another uh, expression, but that's exactly what it is. How does, how does uh, hypocrisy, which you talk about in your book, connect to this, uh, this mind-twisting this manipulation of the American consciousness? Well, you see this uh, very dramatically if you look at uh, the number of moral leaders within the Republican Party who have been uh, exposed for immoral behavior, the nature of which they were preaching against. Whether we go with Newt Gingrich, who um, was attacking Clinton for having sex with an intern when Gingrich was having sex with an intern in his office. Now, <laughs> Gingrich, in one of my uh, great, uh, what I thought was one of the greatest examples of chutzpah in modern political history, said that really it was a profile and courage for him to do that because if someone found out, he could have been attacked as a hypocrite. Uh, and he was risking that in order to protect the public. In other words, he was a hero for having sex with an intern in his office because he put so much at stake because, uh, since he was No, he was, a, he was a hero for being willing to hypocritically attack Clinton while he was doing the same thing because he knew he was vulnerable to charges of hypocrisy. But he took that risk and went ahead and attacked Clinton anyway. You know, I, this, is an, this is really an aside from the importance of your book, but I've got to ask this question. Why, do you, why is it that his opponents 
don't put this out into the air in the same way that he puts the stuff out into the air about Clinton. And so the, why doesn't the whole public know about this? Well, uh, I, I think that the concept of hypocrisy has not been hammered home. And you don't have, you know, if you talk to the Democrats or you talk to liberals about fighting back, I, I get this response uh, to my book. If you talk to them about fighting back, they will say, well, that makes us no better than they are. But that's not true, because what we would be saying would be true. We would be describing truthful events about Gingrich, and we would be saying, look at the hypocrisy. Look at the hypocrisy of Rush Limbaugh, who blasts baseball player Daryl Strawberry for drug addiction while he... Limbaugh is himself addicted to painkillers. Or Bill Bennett, who talks about the seven moral virtues in his book while he's a gambling addict. Um, or um, uh, talk about... Um, Ted Haggard, president Ted of the... Ted Haggard, Net. yep. You know, I... I uh, uh, Yes, uh, you Ted mentioned. Haggard. I'm going to mention. I'll take it right out of your book here. Ted Haggard, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, an umbrella organization for evangelical Christian churches representing 30 million Christians, and an outspoken opponent of homosexuality. And then we know that he was having sex with a gay, a gay male prostitute while using methamphetamines. And just to, uh, and then he laughs in our faces. By the way, he laughs in the in the faces of our entire profession, let alone the the, the citizenry, by saying that after three weeks of counseling, he became totally heterosexual. Right. And uh, one fact I don't have in the book, uh, Richard, is that when um, when Haggard came back to the church elders and wanted to come back, the reason he was ultimately denied readmission is because in the interim they had discovered that he had absconded with some of the church funds. So um, that's hypocrisy, too, that the uh, sense of moral outrage about the hypocrisy of the gay behavior, when it came down to it, the thing the church was really upset about was that they had lost some of their money. Uh, the moral propriety was uh, not the factor. Hypocrisy has to undermine the, the, the country. It has to undermine individual people. It has to undermine us as an aggregate. Well, that's right. And, and uh, that's why I have said that I think um, uh, that, that's why I went through all of those examples. It's astonishing of the way all of these people were blatantly uh, hypocritical and yet the, their supporters just simply turned a blind eye, looked the other way, and resumed their adoration of these people. Now, Ted Haggard was a, uh, uh, an exception to that, but as I say, only because he was stealing money from the group that he was dependent upon for the forgiveness. We're going to take a short break, Bryant, and we'll be right back. We're listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg, streaming on the web at kzyx.org. 
You're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We'll be back after a very short break. Stay tuned. You're going to want to hear what Brian, Dr. Brian Welch has to say about paranoia, perplexity, and envy. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're here today with Dr. Brian Welch, clinical psychologist and attorney. We're talking about his book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation, and the Assault on the American Mind. By the way, if you have a question for Dr. Welch, the number here is 707-937-5103. Again, 707-937-5103. Zero three. Let's talk some more, Brian, about paranoia and how paranoia is used to manipulate the minds of our citizens. Well, uh, Richard, I, I think paranoia is a term that we all use, um, but uh, clinically, uh, it's it's really even more interesting than the street use of the term, which generally means we're afraid of somebody or suspicious of somebody. Certainly, uh, clinical paranoia involves fear and suspicion. But I think there are some very specific aspects of it that I write about in the book that I think help make sense of why America has become so especially paranoid in, in recent years. Paranoia, when you begin to look at it in a clinical setting with patients where you can really put the mind under a microscope, what you see is that paranoia is really a fear that our personal boundaries, I mean, whether it's our body or our the space we feel is necessary for personal safety, it's violated or we're afraid it's going to be violated by some external menacing force. And in extreme cases of paranoid personalities or paranoid schizophrenia, we will ex experience that persecutory external force is actually inside us, it's hearing voices and what have you. Now, so it's the most interesting aspect of it to me is there is a feeling that something is going to penetrate our personal boundaries, and that is terrifying to us. Now, if you look at 9-11, I think that was uh, one of the things that made 9-11 so frightening was that it came right inside our national boundaries in a way that nothing ever had before. We were penetrated. We were penetrated. That's exactly right. And when that happens, people uh, become very perplexed, very confused, and very anxious. This same phenomena occurred right after World War II when we were adjusting to the so-called Red Menace. There was a feeling that communists were everywhere, 
were, you know, Hoover wrote his book, The Enemy Within, which was perfectly designed to make people very paranoid of communists in our midst and led to McCarthyism, the red baiting, and so on. Now, how did this work post 9-11? Well, first of all, there was a sense of needing a strong response, but we didn't know where to respond to. We couldn't see the enemy. We couldn't find the enemy. So if you think about this problem of feeling like the enemy is within, within our borders, there are sleeper cells, da-da-da-da-da, uh, it's terrifying to remain in that state. Now, what George Bush did was to externalize the enemy. He took the enemy out from within us, and he put it out onto the axis of evil. Now, as crazy as that thing was, it did help some anxiety subside from some people who had very little sophistication or knowledge about foreign policy. Now, the enemy isn't unrecognized. We know the enemy is in Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, who are part of this axis of evil. Now, Iran and Iraq had been at war with each other forever. They had, were just finishing a war where there were over a million casualties. They hated each other. Uh, they were in no way, because of uh, religious differences, going to form any type of axis of good, evil, or anything else. So it just didn't make sense. And North Korea is so paranoid, uh, they weren't going to join uh, forces with these two other countries as part of an axis of evil. But people needed to feel like they knew who the enemy was, that they could spot it on a map, and that it was some place that could be located. So you're talking about Bush setting up a kind of global externalization, sort of the opposite of what we might uh, help our patients with, namely when our patients are, are feeling, say, anxious inside and they have a tendency, if they do, to look outside themselves for some relief for the anxiety, whether, it, whether it's something causing the anxiety outside themselves or looking for, for some cure outside themselves, such as a pill, we as clinicians might direct them to look inside themselves as a way of, of calming their inner state. On, on the macrocosm level, rather than dealing with our feelings as a country, how we felt about being penetrated, you're saying that he provided us with a, 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 an ideal, if you will, uh, externalization, this axis of evil. Let's look out there for what the terrible thing is. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And, and follow me. Now that I have provided this service for you, I'm the one that knows what reality is like, and I'm the one that can fill in the gaps in your confusion. And therefore, you should follow me because I'm the one that can make you comfortable, as I just have done by creating this axis of evil. Now, I, I should say at this point, Richard, one of the things that undergirds all of this is the concept that you mentioned earlier of, of perplexity or uncertainty about what's real and what's not real. People have a deep psychological need to be able to make sense 
of the world around them, of their reality, yes. uh, including you know their inner feelings, their outer feelings, what have you. And when they can't do that, they start to get anxious, they get very anxious, and then they get more anxious. So they desperately need someone to play the role that Bush played or that leaders play. Otherwise, they're going to start experiencing psychological fragmentation, and that's something that leads us to the abyss of mental disintegration. So you really, uh, they need someone to tell them what's real and what's not real. Now, when you and say, when you, excuse me for interrupting, when you say they need someone to tell them, the, the fact that they have that need for someone to tell them is cultural. It's something that we have been taught to begin with, isn't it? I, I, I mean, think it's. Uh, I think it's something that psychologically, uh, it's a psychological prerequisite. Is the way I look uh, at it. I don't mean there are not cultural components to it, but I think it's just that, uh, in, in the same way uh, as you know from you know studying uh, infant studies and so on, the child needs the mother to hold the environment and help the child make sense of his or her environment. Uh, that. If people begin to get perplexed, and again, paranoia, envy, sexual perplexity, if they get confused in those areas and it's severe enough, pronounced enough, traumatic enough, then they become much more dependent on leaders to tell them how they can restore psychology, a feeling of psychological stability and well-being. Yeah, I mean, this dependency you're talking about uh, sounds to me like something that we're training into ourselves because we're, I certainly agree with you about the, uh, as when we're children, neonates and then children, that, that we're dependent on, on our mothers for, and, and, and perhaps fathers to a certain extent for, t for uh, teaching us how to be. There comes a time when we could also then be teaching ourselves and be taught to be able to look within for resources rather than perpetuate looking without because the looking without it, it seems like it, it it has to lead to to looking to some leader as you point out absolutely and i think when and you're you know, pointing out the dangers of this because if the leaders become manipulative as you're pointing as you're telling us over and over again in this important book of yours if they become man manipulative then the citizenry are on the receiving end of manipulation rather than truth and virtue. Absolutely. Very and dangerous, extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous, and a lot of people with a lot of incentive to do that. Excuse I me, Brian, I, I want to just take a, a, a call here. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, great show as always. Very, very good show, Doctor. You do a great job on Thank the radio. You. Thank you so much. Um, I would just, uh, it, I'm just um, thinking here as you have this good discussion that the United States clearly is the most reactive country in the world. In the last 30 years, I think every country on earth has reevaluated their situation in regard to the world and in regard to, to, to their, their, their um, community of, of other nations in the world. Every country has looked at it. Communist China, the big boogaboo, has now overtaken us as the foremost uh, uh, developer of green energy, 
we have more people in prison than all. I believe this is correct. It's, it, it staggers me when I say it, but I believe we have more people in prison than the rest of the world combined. Isn't that true? The numbers are, are dramatic. I don't know if it's the world combined, but I know in the Western world, we, we are number one with regard to incarceration. By a, by a long shot. By yes, a long shot. Indeed. And, and many millions of people in this country live in constant fear of police harassment, just like any other police state in history. Well, I think what you're and, hearing from Dr. Welch today is how this has been coming about. He's talking about something that is so important in, in this book, which is the purposeful manipulation of the American mind using sophisticated psychological techniques for manipulating our minds over a period of time. Well, one quick comment on that, and it's a wonderful thesis, and I'm not uh, adverse to subscribing to it, but I'm just forced to point out that this has always been the case in Western history. Fundamental contradictions, believing in God, but going out and murdering all the Indians, or, uh, you know, this is a, a hundred years war in Europe. You know, what does that really mean, 100 years of war? And, and, and this was in a highly Christianized environment. And I just think that the contradictions that you're, um, that you're poking at go deeper in Western civilization. And that they, and I'm sorry to talk too much. And then a last comment. That I believe that most of the world is revising this uh, this policy of uh, stupidity combined with brutality in order to feel better. I, I don't want to talk too much, Thank but you. I'm, enjoy I'm enjoying your show very much. Great call. Thank you so much. What What do you think, Brian? Uh, are, well, we, are we leading the way in manipulation while the rest of the world is, is perhaps, if, if I may use the word, improving with regard to more honesty and virtue? Or is the whole world, do you think, going in this direction, the direction being... Not something new, as the caller points out, but using more sophisticated techniques, which is what you're pointing out. That, that, that's correct. And I think your, your caller uh, was not talking too much. He was really helping to clarify something that I haven't clarified. Um, manipulation has occurred, uh, you know, Machiavelli taught us everything we now know about <laughs> manip manipulation. Uh, it's been going on since the beginning of time. What is different and what I spend some time talking about in my book is the technology that we have now to amplify the effect of these manipulative techniques. And television is particularly important because you can communicate subliminally with people in a way that we could never communicate uh, to a mass audience before. So this has become uh, a very sophisticated mix of science and artistry that uh, is becoming more and more dangerous. Yes, in fact, I, I want you to, to tell the, our listeners about how an anti-smoking advertisement can in reality be an advertisement to smoke more. That's sure. such a great example you gave in your book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the example that you're referring to, Richard, and this is something that I think comes in the context of Fox News and looking at how it has been so effective in capturing the minds of people, that if we look, and it's just one example of how what we know about the way the mind works from our experience working with patients in the therapy office, the mind does not have a negating device. The mind operates on the basis of symbols and pictures. 
Now, let me give you an example, which is the one that you're raising, Richard. Uh, the federal government sponsored an advertising campaign to get people to give up smoking. And the message was, don't smoke. Well, the way that translated into the mind, the implant into the mind, if you will, was smoke. That's the powerful symbol that was registering with the young people who were viewing it. So they discovered that after being exposed to this ad, more young people were beginning to smoke. Now, that's the kind of counterintuitive but empirically observable phenomena that we see treating people in therapy that we see we can document from these ads. And so if you it, – it explains how you can make suggestions to people. So it's like uh, saying to somebody, don't think of the number 10. Don't think of the number yes. 10. Don't think of the number 10. In order not to think of the number 10, they have to think of the number 10. So That's then, right. So then they have the number 10 in their mind that they're trying not to think about, which they didn't have in their mind to begin with. That's right. And if – People wonder why Fox News has been so successful. They, they will use what I call psychological implants, uh, fair and balanced, fair and balanced, fair and balanced. Well, uh, come on. Uh, all the networks have problems being fair and balanced, but right. none is so severe as Fox News. But they just say it over and over again. I was you know, out to dinner with a couple that... And I, the husband watches Fox News. And I said, tell me, you know, and I wasn't saying it argumentatively. I just said, tell me, what what do you like about Fox News? And he reflexively said, it's fair and balanced. <laughs> so know, that was an that, example. That's the example of the yeah, implant, saying there, something there over There was no over reflection it. that went into that answer at all. It was He was regurgitating what he had been told by Fox News. You're listening to Dr. Bryant Welch. He's a clinical psychologist. He's a lawyer. He's written this great book called State of Confusion. It's a must-read. It's about the political manipulation and assault on the American mind. Folks, this is a book about how very sophisticated psychological techniques are being used on every one of us as a way to alter our consciousness. We're going to take a phone call here. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Thank you. You're welcome. I just wanted to... Uh... I didn't mean to start out this way, but I, I, I can't repeat uh, I, the quote or anything, and I don't know who it's from, maybe Lenin or Stalin, but it said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth or acceptable as the truth. And I understood from what he just said how that happens. But I, I did want to, um, I don't know if he actually spoke of religion um, Religion promotes fear, um, and he didn't really address that because, to me, the he he went into different fears. But I think fear is just the basic plan of everything that um, that controls people. Because in the Bible, which I don't believe in, but in the Bible, people are called the flock, the sheep, and we raise sheep and. At a certain time in my childhood, I, we had a fire in our pasture, and we were trying to get the sheep out. But the head ram ran them into a corner, 
at the back part of the pasture. We couldn't get them to turn around. They kept running into the fence, all the sheep that were following this ram. And that didn't kill them, but they had, like, heart failure because they were so frightened. Oh, what a wonderful story. That's, 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 thank you so much for bringing that story to us. And, and Brian, that, that's a, wonder, a, a terrific entrance to, to your discussion on the way that the religion is being used in politics in order to sway us. And we've got a couple of minutes left. Can you give us a brief summary on sure. that, Sure. I, I assume the ram was named George Bush. Is that right? <laughs> well, the, the, it could. The, here, here's what. Uh, you're, you're, you're talking the wrong guy on that one because, uh, Brian, in my view right now, I, it feels to me like both parties are one big party and right, they're having right, a party right. at our expense and the rest of us are paying for it. But um, <laughs> let, me, let me say, no, there is a full chapter in the book on religion, and I couldn't agree with you more, uh, that the, uh, in my book I focus more on the evangelical right, but I don't mean to exonerate any religion in just focusing on, on the fundamentalist. Um, one of the statistics and uh, that I found to be most mind-boggling is something like 40, 42% of the American public characterizes themselves as born again. Um, and what I talk about, the thing that I thought was, uh, that, that I found mis- most intriguing in, in uh, uh, writing the book was... Uh, not not at all to disagree with you about the role of fear and, you know, you'll go to hell and uh, all those things. But what I thought was interesting as I looked at the evangelical movement was the role of ecstasy. And that if you uh, look at what goes on with a number of these people, uh, the fundamentalist evangelical experience is really an ecstatic one. And this is something that crosses boundaries for many, many fundamentalist religions. Uh, The same thing was true with some of the fundamentalist Muslim uh, sects. And so it becomes like a drug that people can, you know, praise the Lord, have a blessed day, and feel very good about themselves, and have a little glow that comes from following that particular faith. So I think it's it's very interesting that you mentioned the fear aspect of it, and I, I could not agree with you more. But I also think there's another form of control, which is more drug-like, and that if you believe, then you can have this warm glow. Now, um, uh, it will depend upon your religious background, but I can remember as an eight-year-old boy sitting in a congregational church in New England, and when I heard that Jesus loved me, there was a deep and warm glow that I got from that that, that stayed with me for the rest of the day. You use a, you have a great word in the book. You call it religious thraldom. Yes, yes. That it does then, it does create uh, an addiction and people are enthralled or there is a religious thraldom, as you said, Richard. That's right. So... Um, uh, your metaphor of the flock is 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 very apt, and uh, uh, people are easily controlled by religion. It's very dangerous, and while people will say religion causes war, I think 
a better way of phrasing it is to say that people's need to be told what to do is the cause of war. And religion is just one of the vehicles by which they're taught. Well, the connection you make is fascinating, Bryant. You're talking about people getting a feeling. And so, and, and so much of what we do is, is, is directed by feeling, whether it's feeling that we create internally, feeling that we create with, with drugs, feeling that we create by spending, what I call the, the controllable impulse disorders. Uh, you know, smoking makes a feeling, eating makes a feeling, drinking and drugging create feelings, gambling make feelings, and spending. These are, these are things that all create feelings, and you're talking about how religion creates feelings, and I'm going to read directly from your book. You say, religious thraldom, this feeling, ties people to an economic system that denies them health care security, threatens their social security, saddles their children with debt, ruins their environment, possibly in a cataclysmic fashion. This is all from feeling. And then it, you go on to say these are all justified by an invisible hand of greed that is co-founded with God's love and, and goodness. In other words, you're making the connection between, between how people's religion and their feeling about it is manipulated by politicians. And then you go on, the effect on the electorate it's, is that they are misled by a church that tells them their political interest is served by a party that in fact has little to do with the interests of the rank-and-file churchgoer in America. You know, I, I, I purposely, you know, read this here, Brian, because I, I want to end the program with that, with that um, you know, with this paragraph from your very important book. I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. It is, it is, it's been a deep privilege. Uh, we, we hardly, I mean, we got a lot of the good points out. There's so much more to say. I want to refer everyone who's listening to Bryant Welch's, Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. Thank you, Bryant. Thank you very much, Richard. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>